0: The empirically-minded theologian adopts a different procedure. He asks how the world inclusive of man is to be explained. He would let the actual world tell its own story and offer its own suggestions, not silence it while abstractive speculation. Setting out with presumptions possibly irrelevant to actuality weaves a system of thought which may prove to conflict with facts. He sets out from facts and inductions its premises are as firmly established and as universally acknowledged as any of the stable generalizations of science. Here there is at least common ground, as distinct from private certitude, from which argumentation may proceed. Coercive demonstration being confessedly unattainable, it is to be inquired what kind of justification for reasonable belief natural theology can afford and the first step is to set forth the facts and generalizations which collectively constitute our data or premises. The forcibleness of nature's suggestion that she is the outcome of intelligent design lies not in particular cases of adaptedness in the world, nor even in the multiplicity of them. It is conceivable that every such instance may individually admit of explanation in terms of proximate causes, or in the first instance, of explanation other than in terms of cosmic or external teleology. And if it also admits of teleological interpretation, that fact will not of itself constitute a rigorous certification of external design. The forcibleness of the world's appeal consists rather in the conspiration of innumerable causes to produce by their united and reciprocal action, and to maintain a general order of nature narrower kinds of teleological argument, based on surveys of restricted spheres of fact, are much more precarious than that for which the name of the wider teleology may be appropriated, in that the comprehensive design argument is the outcome of synopsis or conspection of the knowable world. So long as organisms were believed to have originated in their present forms, and with all their specialized organs ready-made, the argument that adaptation of part to whole of whole to environment and of organ to function implied design was forcible, but its premise became untenable when Darwin showed that every organic structure had come to be what it now is through a long series of successive and gradual modifications. Gradualness of construction is in itself no proof of the absence of external design. It is not at this point that Darwinism delivered its alleged death blow to teleology. The sting of Darwinism rather lay in the suggestion that proximate and mechanical causes were sufficient to produce the adaptations from which the teleology of the eighteenth century had argued to God. Assignable proximate causes, whether mechanical or not, are sufficient to dispose of the particular kind of teleological proof supplied by Paley. But the fact of organic evolution, even when the maximum of instrumentality is accredited to what is figuratively called natural selection is not incompatible with teleology on a grander scale, as exponents of Darwinism were perhaps the first to recognize and to proclaim. Subversive of Paley's argument, it does not invalidate his theistic conclusion, nor even his view that every organism and organ is an end as well as a means. Indeed, the science of evolution was the primary source of the wider teleology current for the last half century as well as the main incentive to the recovery of the closely connected doctrine of divine eminence. This kind of teleology does not set out from the particular adaptations in individual organisms or species, so much as from considerations as to the progressiveness of the evolutionary process, and as to the organic realm as a whole. In an exposition of the significance of the moral order for theistic philosophy, the first step is to point out that man belongs to nature and is an essential part of it, in such a sense that the world cannot be described or explained as a whole without taking him and his moral values into account. Professor Pringle Patterson especially has elaborated the doctrine that, as he expresses it, man is organic to the world. What precisely this or the similar phrase, man is the child of nature, should mean, if either is to be more than a half-truth, needs to be made clear. Insofar as man's soul, that is, man as noumenon, or, in the language of spiritualistic pluralism, the dominant monad in the empirical self, is concerned, we are not authorized by known facts to regard man as organic to nature, or as the child of nature, in the sense that he is an emergent product of cosmic evolution. We are rather forbidden by psychology to entertain any such notion. But this proviso being observed, it must qualify all that is further said in the present connection. We can affirm that man's body with all its conditioning of his mentality, his sociality, knowledge and morality, is of a piece with nature, and that, in so far as he is a phenomenal being, man is organic to nature or a product of the world; and this fact is as significant for our estimation of nature as for our anthropology. If man is nature's child, Nature is the wonderful mother of such a child. Any account of her which ignores the fact of her maternity is scientifically partial and philosophically insignificant. Her capacity to produce man must be reckoned among her potencies. Explain it how we may. And man is no monstrous birth out of due time, no freak or sport. In respect of his body and the bodily conditioning of his mentality, man is like, and has genetic continuity with, Nature's humbler and earlier born children. In the fullness of time, nature found self utterance in a son possessed of the intelligent and moral status. Maybe she was pregnant with him from the beginning. And the world ages are the period of her gestation. As to this anthropocentric view of the world process and its coextensiveness with teleological interpretation, more will be presently said. But in the light of man's continuity with the rest of the world, We can at once dismiss the view that nature suddenly stumbled or darkly blundered on man while churning the universe with mindless motion. The world process is a preparatio anthropologica, whether designedly or not, and man is the culmination up to the present stage of the knowable history of nature, of a gradual ascent. We cannot explain man in terms of physical nature. Conceivably, nature may be found explicable, in another sense of the word, in terms of man and can be called the threshold of spirit. Judging the genealogical tree by its roots, naturalism once preached that Darwin had put an end to the assumption that man occupies an exceptional position on our planet, apparently implying that there is no difference of status between man and the primordial slime because stages between the two are traceable. But if we judge the tree by its fruits, Darwin may rather be said to have restored man to the position from which Copernicus seemed to have ousted him in making it possible to read the humanizing of nature in the naturalizing of man, and to regard man as not only the last term and the crown of nature's long upward effort, but also as its end or goal.